Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And welcome to Security and Secure, the podcast where I say it's okay to not be okay. I'm Johnny Seafoot, and every week I'm joined by one very special guest. My guest this week was born Isaac Borquet in the Bridgeland Road Estate Custom House, Newham, East London. He may have only got two U's and two E's in his A-levels, but he is one of our best musicians of our generation. No, seriously, he can play the triangle. With two mobile awards, five million streams of his incredible songs, including Every Day, Keep It Moving, and my favourite watching over us, I'm delighted to say joining me on Security and Secure this week is Governor B for a very different type of conversation. We'll touch on his music throughout the interview, but he's also here to talk about toxic masculinity, which he speaks about in his new book, Outspoken, which you can buy now from Amazon and all good bookshops. Please welcome Governor B. Hello, Governor. How you doing? That was an amazing introduction. No one's mentioned my A-level results yet, so well done. Who am I speaking to? Are you Governor B for this interview? Are you going to be Isaac for this interview? Uh, Whatever you want. I'm not too fussed about what people call me. I always prefer Isaac just because... You know, if I'm like at a place where I'm meeting a lot of people and everyone's like, hi, mate, I'm Tim, hi, I'm Sandra, and I'm like, oh, I'm governor. I think it comes across a bit big time, so uh, yeah, i go with Isaac. Is there a difference, though, between the two? Because you've got that persona almost as Governor B that you can kind of hide behind. Yeah, not really, you know. I mean, if people buy a ticket to, to come and watch me perform, then obviously they're, they're getting to know Governor B. But I've, across the, the last few years, become a lot more vulnerable in my music so i feel like they're getting everything now isaac and governor you i want to say have taken on in your life a lot of responsibility so as isaac who's speaking to me now who you've always had that responsibility of things that you can't control for example the way your mum felt over time and has acted out the fact that you've lost a lot of people who are really close to you how have you personally found lockdown as isaac at the moment and then how have you found it as governor b yeah, that's a great question. I think as Isaac, like you say, because um, I'm in a responsible position in my family, among my friendship groups and that kind of stuff, I think lockdown's been quite nice because it's shown me that when I slow down, or when I'm not as busy, when I'm not seeing people as much, um, my friends survive, my family survives, the world doesn't come crashing down. Um, so it's okay to do that from time to time. And I don't think Isaac is 
is very good at, you know, saying no to people. Isaac's a bit of a people's pleaser. He loves being there for people. He loves checking in up on people. He loves doing favours and, and he hates saying no. So um, I guess lockdown's been quite freeing because it's made me chill and, and relax a little bit. Um, in terms of Governor D, it's, it's not been too great because she hasn't worked since March. I think March is my last show. Um, but yeah, luckily I'm doing all right and the bills are just about paid. Um, so I'm learning to see the blessings in me every day. I think my son, who's 15 months old, is, is a huge part of making me see, um, I know, the best of every day and gain some perspective because I'm not missing him walking and crawling and saying his first word and that kind of stuff. So yeah, that puts things into perspective. Well, that's the thing. Family to you is everything. And your story in Unspoken really begins in 2017 with your dad and how he passes away. And I felt like you showed this very clear division between your life before he passed and life after he passed. And he was born in Accra in Ghana and you always described him as being very relaxed. But what did he actually mean to you growing up? Because he really did shape the Isaac that I'm speaking to today. Yeah, definitely. I think he was, you know, the model, first-hand model of a man, um, someone that set an example for me growing up. Now, I grew up on a council estate where a lot of my friends didn't have their dads around, and um, that's not necessarily unique to people that grew up on a council estate. A lot of people don't. um, And just purely for the fact that my dad was present and in the house and came home after work meant a lot to me. So I kind of idolised him, you know. Looking back now, he probably wasn't the most vocal. We probably didn't have the, the closest, deepest connection. But purely for the fact, you know, he came home every day and he worked really hard to provide for the family. Uh, and then we respect him a lot. And we had a great relationship, even though we didn't speak a lot. For example, we didn't, you know, say stuff like, I love you to me until he was on his deathbed and, and that kind of stuff. So I guess people might look at that and think, oh, were you really that close? Did you really have a good relationship? But actually even though he never said it and vocalised it a lot, I never doubted it. I just knew from his actions and how he provided for the family and worked hard and came home every night that he did. But relationships are like chalk and cheese and, you know, your relationship with your wife, you two are very different. And with your mum and dad, she was always the bad cop to him being the good cop. So you couldn't have had two people doing that role of being really vocal like your mum was. So I think if my dad gave more emotionally and he helped my mum with the burden of making sure the household was emotionally healthy and, and disciplining us and that kind of stuff, then she wouldn't have had to overcompensate. But I think because, you know, he wasn't like that and he just was very quiet, very relaxed, very kind of passive in the household, my mum felt like she had to overcompensate for that. Um, but I don't think it would have worked if they were both like that. And it's funny how we just kind of slip into her into our positions when we get, you know, married. For me, when I got married, I think I just followed in my dad's footsteps and my wife kind of pulled me to the side a few months in and she was like, you don't really talk and you don't really offer much in the in the way of communication. And I'd really appreciate if you tried to do that. And for me, it was tough because imagine I've spent 27 years looking at my dad and thinking, right, this is how you are a man. This is how you are a husband. And so I had to kind of recalibrate and think, right, this isn't healthy for my wife, so I need to try and be a different kind of person, you know, um, while not losing who I am at the core. So, yeah, it's, it's a strange dynamic, but I think I'm just about getting there or, or working it out as I go along, at least. And that's the thing, and your wife, Emma, has done an incredible job of you opening up and actually 
and with yourself said, do you know what? We do go to marriage counselling. We do have therapy because we shouldn't be trying to hide that because there are underlying issues that are going to make me vocalise and communicate. And you've always been able to communicate through your music with lyrics, but it's very different putting words to paper to actually saying things out loud for yourself. Yeah, 100%. I mean, like you say, with the music, that's kind of therapeutic for me. That's a way of me processing. And, you know, before I was married or in a long-term relationship, I was only kind of responsible for myself. Obviously, I was a son to my parents and a brother to my brother, but no one was really heavily impacted by my actions. But when I got married, it was like I couldn't just go into my shell and process through my music because, you know, my wife needed more from me. And so... When she suggested counselling and, and therapy, you know, change is uncomfortable. So I was really against the idea at the start. But after going and, and kind of giving in, it really helped us as a couple because we're coming from two different worlds, you know. I talk a bit in the book about how when my family had dinner, my mum would kind of cook, leave it on the pot, and everyone would just go up to the pot, grab their food, and go to their respective bedrooms or the sofa. We wouldn't really sit together, whereas my wife's family... Every night at a certain time, they'd sit around the table, they'd practice communicating, they'd talk about their days, how they're feeling. And she had a massive head start with, with communicating how she felt. And so I'm playing catch up and it's challenging, um, but I'm moving in the right direction. And I think it's resulting in a much more of a, a healthier union between the two of us. A hundred percent, because it's all about the energy you give off. I grew up having dinner in my bed, because that's what my mum did. She wasn't in my bed, she was in her own bed, and I was in my own bed. But I grew up having dinner after school (laughs) in my bed at 6.30 with Hollyoaks, and I stayed in my bedroom, and then I moved out and bought a flat, and I now have dinner at the table, not the sofa, the table, even though it's just me. But I still set the table for one and eat at the table, and I feel so different in my mannerisms and the way that I'm actually enjoying the food now, enjoying the dinner experience because it's an experience and you know the funny thing is there isn't even anything wrong with having dinner in bed or or doing your own thing but it's just you've got to think about see our parents have set the precedent but what kind of life do we want we're not just here to be carbon copies and just do what we're told and to just live out what they've taught us but we're meant to i don't know grow our own wings and think about right how would i improve the way i was brought up and what things do i like what things don't i like what things do i want to change and it's I guess it's about constantly asking yourself those questions. I don't think there's a right or wrong, but um, it's just about what's going to result in the best version of yourself, you know? Do you think that you're saying this within the past three years that you've had this epiphany, or do you think before your dad had passed, you'd have had this same ethos? Mm, I think it's an epiphany, to be honest. I think when you lose someone that's so close to you, that's had a massive impact on your life, you lose fear. You lose the fear of dying. You lose the fear of trying to please other people. You lose the fear. You lose the fear of what would happen if I you know, made this big decision for my life, and, and you just go for it. And I don't know. When I was looking at my dad on his, his deathbed, I just thought to myself, man, there must be more to life than just working hard to provide for your family every single day, paying bills, and then passing away. What about how you communicate with each other? What about how you relate with each other, what about going to the depths of your emotion and being vulnerable and growing as a human being, both mentally, physically, spiritually. All these different thoughts came to my mind. And I think if you hadn't passed away, I would still be in this, I don't know, it's a bit of a daze, isn't it? It's just like every day is the same and we're just doing our best. But 
I think when something big happens, it really knocks you for six and you, you start to view life differently. And as men, we don't really know what to do other than live the Groundhog Day because we're so used to going to work and then providing and then you get home, you have dinner, etc. That As men, we don't talk about emotions. As you said, your wife Emma was brought up at the dinner table talking about her day. And, you know, growing up, there was always that thing at camp that would go on of like, oh, you know, what's your green light and what's your red light? What was the good thing that happened to you? What's the bad thing? But as men, we've never been brought up to speak about those bad things. Yeah, that's it. And I guess one thing that was difficult writing this book was I was trying my best not to make sweeping statements or generalise because um, I'm not the you know full representation of like your average man. But what you're saying is so true. In my friendship groups, literally all the guys are just on the back foot when it comes to communicating. And I think that makes me feel that it's a societal thing. It's a, it's a cultural thing. And we're just not equipped with the tools that we need to be able to communicate and express our emotions and you know the most of the women in my life are amazing at it and i think that there's something that we can learn from that um a big thing to say is it's not that men don't want to communicate because vulnerability breeds vulnerability and it actually makes us feel better i think at the end of the day but sometimes it's just that we don't know where to start we don't know how and for me my wife had a massive impact on leading me down that path and i would just encourage everyone to you know try and surround yourselves with people that want to help you further along that path as well. So let's go back to that path that you were trying to lead yourself on. So you're born in 1989 in the Bridgeland Road Estate. You were a, a black teenager on a council estate. You had the police stopping you 15 times by putting you mm. over in your car just because of racial profiling, because you were black, not that you had anything wrong. For example, there was the time that they thought you had a gun and it was literally a camera tripod. What was life yeah. actually like for you growing up? And how were you trying to portray yourself in a very white world that we live in? Yeah, it's hard, man, because I think, you know, one factor is I'm a guy. And I guess coming from a working class background or council estate culture, it's kind of like dog eat dog, you know, and there's limited opportunities. And so you're taught from a young age, just stiff up a lip, you know, like grit your teeth, suck it up. There's no time for emotions. You've got to be strong because... Um, life hard and then added to that I'm a first generation Brit you know my parents came over here over here from from Ghana this is not their country they probably had huge imposter syndrome and, and felt uncomfortable and like they didn't fit in so they were always drumming into my head look you can't waste this opportunity we've come over for a better life for you you don't belong here and, and you know you're going to deal with racism and that kind of stuff but you can't let it get to you. You've got to be strong. So all these things together, you know, me being the eldest child as well, it's just pressure, man. The whole, like, crabs in a bucket mentality. And, you know, a lot of the focus is on the fact that, you know, crabs, when one of them gets to the top of the bucket, another one pulls them down because of limited opportunities. But I think too much focus is placed on, on the crabs. I think we've got to place focus on the environment and the bucket's the environment, you know. It's the fact that police might stereotype us. It's the fact that there's limited opportunities. It's the fact that people in poorer communities have to work harder to equip themselves with the tools to be able to process things like grief. Like, I'm quite privileged now. You know, My friend sent me a link to a good counsellor, went on a website, it was £50. I paid my money, I could go and see her. But that's not the story for everyone coming from where I'm coming from. A lot of people won't have that money to be able to pay for a council. They might have to wait a few months on the NHS or whatever. So, you know, all these things come into play. But ultimately, I think my mum always used to say this thing, it takes a village to raise a child. And 
if you know the, the police, the, the bus driver, the shopkeeper, the next door neighbor, the parents, everyone in the community is focused on you know creating an environment for, for young people like myself to thrive, then I don't know, it just makes the, the load a little lighter and, and gives us a bit of hope for the future. Well, one of those people that wanted to help you thrive was Mrs. Allenson, who you had as a school teacher in 1996. And she was yeah, the first well, person away from your parents that really tried to actually shape the Governor B, the Isaac that I'm talking to today. Mm, no, she was amazing. So, like, even though my parents were great, they were they were always striving, you know, striving to, to survive and go to the next level. And so, you know, the little things every day of telling me, okay, governor isaac you're good at this or you're really talented in this way or you've got so much gifting in this area that you can aspire to do something they didn't really do that they were so focused on like oh we've got to make rent this month we've got to be able to afford petrol in the car just work hard work hard work hard miss arneson was the first person that told me i was good at something she said you're good at writing why don't you try harder in your english class and for me that was it was just incredible to hear because no one had told me that before. And I think if we've got people in our lives from a young age that are encouraging us and pointing out our capabilities and our strengths, it makes a it makes a huge difference. Led to you going on in 2006, age 17, onto MySpace. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, for those yeah, who don't know MySpace, they're listening for your younger fans. We obviously had Facebook coming in about 2005. Before that, it was... Mm. MySpace. And MySpace was a social networking site to make friends, but also had a massive platform for music artists. I think Justin Bieber also started on there. So what was that like for you when you thought, okay, I've got some life experiences now. I've been pulled over by the police. I've been racially profiled. I've grown up on a council estate. I've been writing lyrics. I've enjoying playing the triangle. I'm actually going to put this to practice and go on MySpace and release an actual single. I think it was an, an outlet for me, you know. Like one thing I've always is that human beings, young people, we're not born bad. Like a teenager in my state carrying a knife that kills another teenager, he's a criminal. But in reality, nine times out of ten, that young person is just misguided. People aren't born with bad morals. And so for me, my space and music, it was a way for me to highlight the issues in my community and say, look, this is what I see on a day-to-day. It's guns, it's knives, it's... Uh, kind of sexualizing women, all that kind of thing, which is one side of it. But another side is I don't want to stay like this. I don't want the community to stay like this. And so I had the opportunity to put that in my music. And the fact is, government officials, members of parliament, they're not coming to the estate. So I can't have these conversations with them. I can't impact change. My space was a way for me to be part of the change that I want to see. And Thankfully, Tom, uh, I'm sure you've got millions of pounds or whatever. But hold on, hold on. Wait, you were friends of Tom? I was friends of Tom on MySpace. He was my first ever friend. Mate, we've got mutual friends, man. You're like a long-lost brother. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, no, Tom was great. And I think, you know, a lot of people give social media um, a bad name. And, yeah, there's some really, really bad things about it. But also, we can't forget that it's, it's given life to a lot of things and helped birth um, a lot of things and helped giving people like me a voice. You said that knife crime was obviously prevalent and everyone was walking around with knives in the estate. Did you ever walk around with a knife? No, I never carried a knife. And that was mainly because I feared my parents more than I feared the streets. But yeah, it wasn't something that I ever was tempted to do. I remember a day when I saw my first gun. I think I was about 11 years old. And in that moment where my friend handed it to me, he said, oh, look at this. It's like, 
it's weird, man. I had this moment where this was my crossroads, you know. Either I sensation that I find it's like a sensational moment and I'm like, wow, this is amazing. I want more of it and that kind of stuff. Or I'm like, I know this road isn't for me and even though it's around me, I'm gonna be different. And you know, I just knew in my heart that wasn't that wasn't for me. And then you release your first album, The Narrow Mind. How did you feel after you'd got those words out? What was the reaction from the estate, from your friends, from your peers, from the, your acquaintances around you who were looking at you trying to make a difference? Did it make them sit up and go, right, I'm getting rid of all the knives now. I can see what Governor B is doing. I need to change my life as well. No, it didn't, man, because, you know, I guess for some people maybe, but, you know, if you're coming from that community, you will know that a lot of the people that are running around doing some some really heartbreaking stuff, they don't want to be doing it. And the day that they realise I want to get out, it's not always as simple. Relationships have been forged, they're too deep in and all that kind of stuff. But I think when I put out that album, people thought I was just having a bit of a laugh before that. And okay, he's on this positive trip, he thinks he's a Carla or Georgia Poet or whoever was around at that time. But I think the album showed people that I was actually serious about showing an alternative side and that there's a lot of positivity that comes from my area as well. And I guess it proved as a bit of escapism and another another route for people. And, you know, I get messages from people all the time that listen to my music and they're like, man, thank you so much. This really helped me for a tough period. Or I'm in a gang and I knew that I shouldn't be and this gave me the, the faith I needed to leave. Or I've been self-harming and now I know that I'm worth something. So, you know, little messages like that mean a lot to me. But... I'm not naive. I know that a lot of people are in situations that are quite hard to get out of. So if all the music is for now is escapism, then that's enough for me. Well, talking of escapism, you've gone from New and East London and then you go on tour and you end up in Vegas. And I've written a note <laughs> that it was on page 107, but it's not because I can't actually find the anecdote now to read out. So all I've got written down in front of me is page 107, go on tour to Vegas. It doesn't make sense <laughs> to me. Does it make sense to you, my friend? Uh, well, I got the chance to support an artist called Matt Redman who was doing a tour of uh, America. We went to, I think it was Atlanta, Vegas, California, um, North Carolina, a few different places. And um, the great thing about Vegas is obviously I've just seen it on TV and stuff up until that point. So I literally thought Vegas was the strip. But I was surprised when I got there because there's just tons of desert and it's actually quite a cool place. But the crazy thing about that is the night before our tour date, in Vegas was the the night where that you know crazy guy just shot loads, shot and killed loads of people, and so the state was in a in a bad way, and there was talks of calling off the um the tour date, but we did it anyway, and it ended up being this kind of beautiful vigil where you know the whole city came together, and it was special, and it just reminded me that you know what in the the darkest of times when humanity unite and we're on the same page, there's actually a lot of hope that. That comes with that, but yeah, that was a special, a special tour for me. See, I wish I'd written that bit down rather than just go on tour <laughs> to Vegas because it's completely different, and I can see why that resonated with me so much. Because obviously, the only way I can relate to that is the Ariana Grande Man- Manchester bombing yeah, and the concert yeah. after, and it's the fact that music can really bring people together. It sets the emotion. So when you're sad, you've got certain types of music. When you're happy, when mm-hmm. you want to dance, when you're in love, etc. Your music, the lyrics that you give are so powerful anyway. But after that had happened in Vegas, you can see why it brought everyone together as a community. Yeah, 100%. And I think that's why I'm grateful for the kind of music I do. Because if you can imagine, if I was talking about guns and knives and girls, it probably would have been a bit tone deaf for the moment um, in Vegas. Um, And that whole tour was special. And 
why it was really significant for me is because the last date was in um, LA and I went to the beach and this was probably about three months after my dad had passed away. Up until that point, I was still in my kind of toxic masculinity mind frame of, right, I've got to be strong. I'm not going to be weak. This is what dad would have wanted. But I went to Newport Beach in California and sat down on a bench and I just burst into tears with no one around. And I felt like it was so humiliating. But after I'd finished crying, I felt this freedom that I've never, ever felt before in my life. And that was what brought the barriers down of this whole masculinity thing. That's what taught me that actually I think I'm real now because I've allowed myself to feel how I feel and I've allowed myself to, to go. And that's what really started this journey of me moving forward in a more vulnerable way. And I think that vulnerability very much comes from noticing what your wife Emma was feeling. I want to read you a quote from her diary. And this is from... October You've been reading my wife's diary. Yeah. You, <laughs> is that not allowed? No, I'm joking. There's a thing. Okay, look. I, d- I didn't want to tell you on the podcast, but you've given Emma a bit of issues. She's been seeking uh, comfort with me. I don't know if it's all right with you, but I mean, I know you're at home with your 15 year old son. Um, there's a reason for that. 15 month old son, but um, do you know what? I I couldn't be happier that my wife's. Uh, she chose a good boy like me. You're, yeah, you're a good guy. You're a good guy. Well, exactly. <laughs> so, I was, okay, fine. I'll, t- I'll be honest with you. And then, yeah, that was a bit of a lie. I'm. I've been sneaking <laughs> around your house in preparation, and I found her diary. <laughs> what? <laughs> what she said in her diary. Oh, right. I don't know if I can. If, I don't know if I can tell you what she's been writing in her diary. Uh, hold on. Let me go to a bit of the diary that I can actually read to you because a lot of it's about me. Hold on. <laughs> uh, we had sushi night. No. Oh, I don't. Do you want about our, know about our Nando's? Apparently, she likes no. lemon and herb. She's been telling you she's a medium girl. Oh, Actually, it's lemon and herb. But let's go back to the twenty seventh of October, two thousand seventeen. And Emma says this: I feel like I go round in circles, trying, feeling rejected, getting upset with Isaac for not showing me love, feeling like I should give up, and then trying again. But the problem is that I'm not involving God. I think I can find a solution to a problem that is so much bigger than me, but I can't. God can. I need to step aside and let God take the lead and trust him. I just thought that was so powerful. I just wanted to dissect a couple of themes in that, if that was okay with you. Mm, yeah, sure. So I think the first thing, I, uh, I, I think the best thing is to basically take this line by line for this, if you're comfortable with this. Mm. Uh, yeah, sure. So again, Emma says, I feel like I go around in circles, trying, feeling rejected, getting upset of Isaac for not showing me love, feeling like I should give up and then trying again. How does that feel listening to those words come alive yeah it's tough to hear man really difficult to hear i think when a human being experiences grief um you just forget that the way you respond to that affects the people closest to you in your life now obviously my dad's passed away and so i'm struggling with that but i'm so inside my own head but I don't realise that Emma's struggling with her father-in-law passing away and she's also struggling with the fact that I'm completely shut off emotionally. Now, she has grace for that because, you know, she never really put pressure on me to get over it now or it's been too long and none of that. But, you know, to hear how she felt and that I shut myself off and I was rejecting her, that's, you know, it's not good and doesn't make me feel great. But I actually don't think I had any more capacity at that time to be able to... To give all of me because I was so, I was so affected. And that's the thing. Until you understand what someone else is going through, 
they'll never be able to relate because you've got your own demons, she's got her demons, and there's a crossroads here where neither of you are communicating. Mm, yeah, that's it. And I think it's a journey, you know, um, and especially when, you know, you've got a, a life partner or, or whatever. Someone once told me, you know, when you stand at the altar and you get married or if you commit to someone long term, you're not committing to the person standing in front of you. You're committing to whoever they're going to turn into, which is a scary thought. And I think one thing that I like about Emma is, you know, even through all our, our tough times, she's just got this real commitment to to our relationship. And she knows that it's, it's going to get better. She's always got that hope. It's got that hope, but also it's challenging you. It's challenging you to step up and be a better person. You know, even if it's as mundane as sitting at the table for your dinner or it's showing her some emotion saying I love you she's trying to keep challenging you and make you a better person for you not for her but for you yeah you're so right you know because that balance is actually quite hard because it's like do I just not say anything and know that he's probably self-sabotaging and he's not being the best that he can be for me do I say something which might come across insensitive because of what he's going through like it's it's a really hard balance but I think ultimately if she thinks that this is going to be better for us going forward, then she's got to take that risk. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's, it's a strong challenge, difficult one, but an important one to, to, to take. And this comes to one of my favourite topics, and I'm so glad that you love it as much as I love it. <laughs> and it's all about love languages. And uh, uh, for those who don't know what a love language is, we all have usually two types of love languages each out of these list of five. So there's quality time, acts of service, buying of gifts, words of affirmation and physical touch. And since I found out about this only about a month ago, I've been researching so much into this because I'm very much into words of affirmation and physical touch, whereas other people will be an acts of service to me and buy me gifts. But I don't like that as much as the words and the touching. So what are your two and what are Emma's two? And let's then take that back to that diary entry and what we've just been talking about. Yeah, mate, it was eye-opening for me, man, and probably was for you as well. But mine are physical touch and acts of service. So, you know, if we're sitting on the sofa and it's giving me a cuddle, I quite like that. Or if I come home and the house is just, like, really tidy or whatever, which sounds really patriarchal, but I don't mean it in a patriarchal way, um, that'll just make me feel good. Whereas with Emma, she loves quality time. And I used to think that was just both of us being in the house together. But she, she actually likes, like, you know, good conversation and hanging out together and doing fun stuff. And also words of affirmation as well. So if I tell her, you know, that I love her and, and she's great at, you know, whatever, she loves that. But the funny thing is we often show love in the way that we like to receive it. And so I was often showing Emma love just by physical touch and acts of service. So she'd come home, the house would be sparkling, but she wouldn't care. She'd just be like, can we hang out? And I'd feel really, like, rejected. But, um, yeah, I think love language is all about showing your partner love in the way that they wish to receive it rather than the way that we wish to receive it. A 100% agree with you. A 100% agree with you. So that's basically your life in a nutshell we've spoken through. We've spoken about your dad passing. We've shown how that shaped you. We've looked at the council estate that you grew up in, that you found love, that you've got a child, that you're trying to find this journey of happiness now. You're having therapy for that. But I want to talk about now being unspoken and the idea of toxic masculinity specifically. What do you understand about that term? Well, for me um, and in my life, it's just the fact that I was conditioned from a young age that strength, you know, dominance, never crying, getting on with things really quickly, 
was the way to go. I think growing up on a council estate had a part to play with that. I think culturally being a first generation Brit had a part to play. But when my dad passed away, I tried my best to show strength and to be like immune to emotion and not to cry. And it sounded good, but it was actually detrimental to my mental health. I was waking up depressed and sad and I was suppressing all my emotions and it's like my body and my mind was shutting down. So for me, toxic masculinity is just... Now, all these things that society, all these pressures that society puts on men, um, you know, the bravado and the macho-ness and all that kind of stuff can actually be toxic for us. It can actually be, be harmful. And that's my understanding of it. I think that's a really great way of pulling it because I think we've got feminists who have always tried to see the empowerment of females and you know we've got the equal pay act and the sex discrimination act and females fighting for more power and to be more ceos but from a male side we don't look at the detriment that we do to each other yeah no for sure and i think in this day and age we don't do nuance well and it's like things can't coexist i would say i'm a feminist but i would also say that i really care about men kind of getting rid of all the things that men are supposed to be doing and just letting their guards down and being vulnerable. And I think that we can, you know, push the narrative that we have to protect and be there for women at the same time as pushing the narrative of helping men to be more vulnerable and communicate more. But how do we do that? How, as men, do we open up those conversations? Because as much as I try and do it with my friends, and we do do it, we still like being lads and mucking around and being silly. And that's the enjoyment I get from being with my boyfriends. Whereas with my girlfriends, I much prefer having a really deep chat with and it's always very serious. Yeah, I think we have to practice. I'm not saying that don't be a lad. I think, well, whatever that means, I think be who you are and, and what comes naturally to you. But one simple thing I've been doing, just as an example, is normally I'd be like to my, my guy mates, how you doing today? But nine times out of ten, every guy in the world is going to say, yeah, I'm good and not expand. So I always say now, on a scale of 1 to 10, how are you feeling today? And then it causes us to think, mm, I'm a 6 today. Oh, why are you a 6 and not a 10? I'm a 6 because this happened or this is making me feel this way. So I think a big thing is creating space for deeper conversation because vulnerability breeds vulnerability. I don't know if you've ever walked into a, a conversation with a group of guys. Whatever the first guy says is what will lead the conversation. So if the first guy says, yeah, I'm cool today, man, everyone will most likely be cool. If the first guy says, yeah, I'm good, but I've been really struggling with work at the moment, it just opens this bed of vulnerability and everyone follows suit and feels that they can be vulnerable too. So, yeah, I think it's creating space for deeper conversations. I love that. I love that way of doing it. Rather than saying, how are you? Say a number in return. Because you're right, yeah. that conversation can, less, can then just begin. That's such a powerful thought. I've never had it in 28 years of my life. <laughs> yeah well i think we just got uh, it's creating space man because like you said you know girls ladies they don't need any help in that area my wife i ask her how her day is she'll tell me what she had for dinner who spoke to her on the train or whatever most guys aren't, aren't built like that so i think it's trying to equip each other for the tools to be able to walk down that path
Governor B's book, Unspoken, is out to buy now. Also, he's got a podcast, The Lost Tapes. There's an incredible episode there with Justin Welby. You really need to listen to all about grief. And a charity, Grief Encounters, is a really good place to go to if you're suffering from grief as well. Griefencounters.co.uk. You've been listening to Security and Security with me, Johnny C. If you like what you had, please do go and rate the podcast, like it, and subscribe to it. I can't make this podcast successful without your help. So go on to iTunes. Go on to this podcast, click the five stars and leave a review. Then on Instagram, I'm at Johnny Seifert. There's also at Secure the Insecure Podcast. Go and check that out. I put up all old episodes, little teasers and new episodes as well so you get a flavour of who I've been speaking to. And also I put little conversations on there for you to enjoy as well. And that's it. That's this week's episode done. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, I've been Johnny Seifert. Thank you and goodbye. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.